Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, Travis Norton, Chris Jenny, Matt Alexander, and I sit down to discuss the ramifications of California's new use of force legislation, AB 392, and Penal Code 835A. These new laws should be changing how we train, deploy, and document our uses of force, especially when it comes to some of the more traditional hostage sniper situations. I want to welcome uh, team leader, instructor, and SLP2 cadre member Chris Jenny back to the show, as well as SLP1 guru Travis Norton back to the show. And uh, as a guest, uh, we have Matt Alexander today as well, who teaches our SWAT commander as well as owned his own company teaching a variety of sniper topics. So today we're gonna to talk a little bit about pre-event behavior. The definition of imminent as it applies to AB 392, priority of life, and what you can do better to train your, your and document your decision-making process during events and particularly a hostage event. So as you're listening now, I want you to put yourself in the scenario of a hostage event. A domestic violence incident has devolved into a hostage situation. The husband, who is confirmed to be armed with a handgun, has hit his wife in the face, taken her hostage, and threatened to shoot her. However, his threats are not enough to precipitate SWAT to conduct a crisis entry. 30 minutes later, the suspect suddenly appears from the front door with the handgun at his side. He then turns around to go back inside. What do you do? Yeah, so something that this uh, this brings up, and I, and I kind of identified this problem when we were doing the new use of force training in, in the last year is prior to AB 392, Assembly Bill 392, we would neutralize that suspect based on hostile intent and presentability, right? He's made a threat. He has a firearm, which gives him the, the present ability to, to carry out that threat. If we neutralize that hostage taker, it prevents him from carrying out that threat to kill that hostage in the future. Now, with the new laws, with AB 392, that's no longer the case. And so let's go real quick and just go over something I want everybody to consider from the new language of AB 392, because there's some really unintended negative consequences of this language that are gonna affect tactical teams and their ability to neutralize a hostage taker in some situations. So from 392, and, and I know a lot of you have, have heard this before, a threat of death or serious bodily injury is imminent when based on the totality of the circumstances, a reasonable officer in the same situation would believe that a person has the present ability, opportunity and apparent intent to immediately cause death or serious bodily injury to, to the peace officer or another person. An imminent harm is not merely a fear of future harm, no matter how great the fear and no matter how great the likelihood of the harm, but is one that from appearances must be instantly confronted and addressed. And so if you take the situation that we were just talking about, you have a hostage taker, walks out onto the front porch or, or wherever, is not presenting an immediate threat, 
before we would have neutralized that hostage taker. Hostile intent, present ability, they're all day long. We've laid that out. We've painted that common operational picture for our long rifle or for our crisis entry team. At this point now, with this language, we're most likely to let that hostage taker walk back inside to that structure that they're in. Because what's occurring now is, and if you look at what's going on in Northern California, there's an incident out in Northern California where an officer is already being prosecuted based on the new AB 392 laws, our pre-event um, behavior, what we're doing that leads up to that use of force with the Ninth Circuit really takes a hard look at, especially with the new, new laws. We've got some issues here and some blind spots that, that we need to really drill down deep into and be prepared for based on the jurisdiction that you work in. Yeah, this isn't a new new problem, Trav, to go back to uh, AB 392 and where it came from. We go back to, all the way back to Eureka, we go back to Hayes versus San Diego, where officers' pre-event behavior uh, is now measured. It's just codified now in AB 392. And then let's go back a little bit. You talked about the, the definition of imminent, right? So before we used to have that two-prong question that we would always ask ourselves, right? Present ability and hostile intent. And now we have to add this third prong of imminent. Do you guys remember the definition of imminent before AB 392? Yeah, it used to, for those that had the flexible policies, imminent does not mean immediate or instantaneous. An imminent danger may exist even if the suspect is not at that very moment pointing a weapon at someone. And obviously there's examples that uh, were in policies related to that. And the new 835A has definitely shifted away from that and it's much more restricted. This is why I love teaching with Chris, by the way, because I'll kind of remember something and Chris will be like, no, you're wrong. And then two seconds later, he's quoting it from something. So uh, thanks, Chris. So our entire careers, we've been making these decisions based on that two prong theory and that definition of imminent. And uh, only recently, the last 18 months or so, do we have to change that. And what are we doing in the SWAT community, and particularly the sniper community, to train our our everyday officers, our snipers, our sergeants, our tactical commanders in taking those factors into consideration. And, and now you got to really talk about, you know, what is imminent and why do we have to do that? Why do we have to? We've seen this already in Colorado where we've had some SWAT teams walk away uh, from not taking the risk for something that was no longer uh, placed victims in imminent danger. And, you know, the headlines made it sound very controversial and then and you read it and you understand it and you're like, well, that makes perfect sense. And for those of you that listen uh, outside in the state of California, we're talking about new legislation that was passed that redefined how we measure our uses of force. Matt, anything else to add to that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, when, when we're teaching use of force in sniper schools, we are that's kind of a, a specific application of a use of force, right? So what I tell them is, you know, you may be completely justified in launching a rescue attempt from an entry team, but you may not be comfortable initiating a sniper shot. And the difference between those two things is primarily that the entry team is going to get in there and they're still going to make a deadly force decision based on what they see in front of them right that second. They're either going to shoot or they're not going to shoot. Um, but it's going to be a lot easier for them to, to justify imminent threat because it's probably going to be to them. 
whereas with a sniper, you're, you know, you're typically, if you're doing your job right, you're unseen by the suspect. He may not even know you exist. So um, you're going to have to defend that with imminent threat to somebody else. And if you're not seeing something that's about to unfold in the next couple of seconds, it could be a lot more challenging to defend that use of force than it would be for anybody else. And that could also apply to a containment officer too. You know, I'm only specifying snipers because that's who I spend the majority of my time training. So you, you make a great point. All of us uh, today have acted in the lieutenant capacity uh, during, during patrol operations and these kind of functions. And, you know, one of the rulers I have is what's the safest solution for this tactical problem for the community and for our people and for the suspect. And in that particular scenario, this is not the safest solution for the officers or the suspect, because we're going to send an entry team in to do something that we could do with a long rifle, but we're doing that because of this definition where now we go contact that person and they have every opportunity to surrender and they don't, they're actively resisting or being aggressive towards us. And we have to immediately address that. And now we're, now we're changing the battle space, putting our people at further jeopardy to meet this definition, whereas a long rifle problem maybe could have taken care of that 18 months ago. That, does that make yeah. sense? Am I, do we, you all agree Absolutely. with that? And the, uh, you know, the, the benefit the long rifle, the precision long rifle brings to the table is that it mitigates the risk um, in a resolution like that for both the hostage and for the entry team. And we just probably need to understand that that, that could be um, a tool that's being taken away from us under certain circumstances now based on the changes in the language, 35A. And how it's interpreted, right? So it's going to be different. Uh, Chris and I are Northern California guys. Matt, you're a Central California guy. Travis is a Southern California guy. And it really depends on who your district attorney is when we're talking about criminal prosecution now. We're not just talking about civil. So let's talk a little bit about uh, a similar situation in priority of life. So let's talk about the uh, scenario. We talk about this a little bit in our team leader commander classes, a decision-making dilemma problem. Chris, could you read that one? Yeah, two or more terrorists are holding and threatening to kill a hostage after killing several other citizens. Other options have either failed or are inadequate and a tactical intervention is required. The hostage is being held in an adjacent room by one of the suspects while the other is guarding the door. Upon entering the room, the first suspect attempts to surrender. Delaying the entry will allow the second suspect to kill the hostage. To save the hostage, is deadly force authorized on the first suspect? Now, I would say in the past, if we use our two-pronged test, they've demonstrated the present ability and the hostage. Yeah, they've killed other hostages. And I'm assuming, yeah, and I'm assuming in this situation, you know, we've already tried to negotiate. We've already, you know, we've already done a lot of those things that we do to try to resolve this thing in the least peaceful resolution as possible. Yep, other options have failed. But now we have imminent. So we go back to the current definition in California law of the definition of imminent. And is that first suspect now an imminent threat? Yeah, he's... he's... Travis says no. Yeah, Chris, what do say you say? Now he's in a separate room and uh, we're dealing specifically with that. Um, it's not merely fear of future harm. There's a separation between that hostage and the suspect. Matt is grinding his teeth right now. 
Yeah. So uh, no, what do you got, I Matt? think, uh, you know, I think like any other time, the more demonstrated violence you've seen in an incident, the easier time you're going to have justifying force. But um, I agree with Travis and Crit, like based on the letter of 835A and the definition of imminent, I think you're going to have a hard time with it now. As reasonable as I think it would seem to anybody that we neutralize that guy. Marcus, this brings up a, a point, and we were kind of talking about this before, and I think it bears some discussion is that, you know, put aside moral and put aside what we took our oath to do legally, we do not have to intervene in anything. We don't have to intervene in a hostage situation. We don't have to legally intervene in an active shooter. We can sit outside and let that happen. And, and I got to be honest with you, talking with some people, they are almost pushing us into a corner where I don't want to be prosecuted. I don't want to lose everything I have. And so as a result of that, I'm sorry you're a hostage today. That really sucks. But we're going to sit out here because the legislators have pushed us into a corner where we can either be prosecuted based on where we work and it's it's ugly and i don't know if society is ready for that but that is where we are at and i don't think they understand where legislatively they are pushing us yeah it's a great point right and we're not it's always a balance though so let's talk a little bit about the definition of a special relationship and then just for those people listening because I happen to know you, all three of you very well. We all signed up for this job many years ago because we had a dedication to duty and into the communities that we serve. And we're not trying to discount that at all. We're talking about having a realistic conversation because we, we serve the communities, you know, at the discretion of how the communities want to be policed. And in the state of California, at a state level, we're talking about the, the legislature, what they want to do and what not to do. And I don't think that the average citizen in the state of California understands the ramifications of that wording. And I think it'll play itself out in the next year or so. But uh, I, I prefer not to have somebody in my agency or my team be those case subjects until we can make this law, write this law a little bit better. So let's talk a little bit about the special relationship aspect of this and what the definition of a special relationship is. Yeah, a special relationship doctrine is a legal principle that makes the state liable for the harm inflicted on the individual by a third party, provided that the state has assumed control over the individual that is sufficient to trigger an affirmative duty to provide protection to that individual. So we usually see this in custodial situations. When we have somebody in custody, we have to provide for their medical well-being, housing, uh, feed them. Uh, but where this is coming into play is when we've uh, interacted with people that have, uh, you know, our mental health issues, our, our barricaded single suicidal subjects. Uh, now we're starting to walk away from those. However, if we made uh, promises or affirmations to family members that we're going to take care of that person, uh, we have taken actions um, that put us, uh, that make us liable for that uh, special relationship. And when I was younger, I didn't understand that at all. And my chief would actually bring that up a lot. Hey, we have no obligation to actually be here or do anything. And, and he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Legally, we did not. 
And my job now is to balance that legal obligation with the community's expectations because the law says this, but the community expects this and they are not always the same. And so how do we mitigate that? What can we do to serve the community and not go to jail? That's what we're talking about. So we just wanted to bring up special relationship a little bit so everybody remembered that and that there, there is not a great duty. Now we'll see how the Parkland case goes. Chris has been following that closely. Um, that's the only case that I know of where we're talking about a dereliction of duty uh, case and what the courts say, because they're going to start defining that a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see, even though that's on the other side of the country. But I don't, I don't want to digress this too far, but I think that's a separate conversation once that case goes through all the court system and, and uh, we see what they say. Going back to our scenario where we have two hostage takers. I think all four of us agreed that we used to be able to neutralize that first person to get to the hostage. And with the strict interpretation of this wording, we don't feel comfortable that we could do that now. Everybody agrees with that. How does this affect what we've learned in, in the law enforcement profession for the last 20 years, the priority of life? What are your thoughts on the priority of life and how that does this affect your understanding of the priority of life or maybe what we were taught? Maybe not recently, but even years ago in priority of life, because I've been involved in some pretty heated discussions on the priority of life. Uh, I think they're less and less recently. I don't know if that's because people are tired of hearing me talk about it or they're actually talking about it themselves long before I asked the question. So, Marcus, you bring up a good point. And one of the problems, you know, the priority of life, much like the business world, we try and take these complex topics and break them down in a very simple um, I wouldn't say algorithms, but we try and break them down into, hey, this is one, two, three, four, five, almost a checklist. And, and if we're talking about the priority of life and what NTOA, they call them the safety priorities, which is just a politically correct way of saying priority of life. There are problems with the priority of life in several circumstances. And one of the first that I ever identified was one that Sid brought up was can you order your officers to commit to a course of action that is going to absolutely lead to their death? And the answer is no, you can't order your subordinates to commit to a suicide problem. Um, we're not the military. That decision is up to the individual, which in those sets of circumstances puts the officer right at the top of that priority. If we talk about the situation that we have here with this new legislation, where we are before we would neutralize a hostage taker based on fear of future harm on threats that they made half hour, an hour ago. Well, we can't do that anymore. And so as a result, we are now putting that hostage taker at the top of the list. That's a problem. And teams need to understand that, you know, based on where you work, and I think Matt brought this up, it, you know, I won't have a problem here in San Diego. He might not. You guys might, especially those guys in L.A. with Gascon, let's be honest, are going to have a problem and possibly brought up on prosecution, not on the civil side, which Matt brought up before. We've always been worried about the civil side, right? Now we're worried about being prosecuted and put in prison. So you need to absolutely have discussions among your team about how you're going to deal with these sets of circumstances because we're getting to a point where you know what the priority of life doesn't even matter anymore in these sets of circumstances 
it's not worth it to me to be prosecuted. That sucks. That's not what I got into this job for. All of us have been in law enforcement for over 20 years, but that's where we're at right now. So Chris, there's no way that right now you're not thinking about a Randy Watt quote. Am I wrong? Uh, yeah, actually, you caught me off guard with that one. Not Randy Watt. It, were you referring to sending uh, the people into harm's way? Yeah. Yeah. Normally, it definitely applies here. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know it off the top of my head, so I won't dare to say it exactly right, but I'm sure you do because you have a way better memory than me. What Travis was saying just reiterated that the conversations have to be had uh, with the team in advance and with the incident commanders, with, with the lieutenants and captains that are going to be out there running these events. So they realistically understand uh, where we're coming from so that when one of these instances unfolding, there's not unrealistic expectations or, or people believe that there's a particular course of action that's going to be engaged in this. These things absolutely cannot be hashed out on the scene. Uh, while an event is unfolding. These are all pre-incident conversations and scenarios that need to be walked through and, and worked out. And we've hit on it before, but it's it's by jurisdiction. It's going to be county by county and, and team by team. And, and another thing, Marcus, uh, in response to what Travis said about priority of life is it's important to remember that priority of life is something we made up as an industry, right? It's not legislative <laughs> Uh, it's not case law. It's just something like a little system we came up with to make decision making easier under complex conditions. And so if there's a, a conflict between safety priorities, whatever we're calling them, in 835A, then 835A wins, unfortunately. And I seriously doubt that legislators, while crafting the language of 835A, imagined a complex hostage situation. I think they were imagining a cop shooting some guy on a traffic stop like they're seeing on all these YouTube videos. And I think that's what they were envisioning when they crafted the language. So I agree that this stuff is probably going to have to get worked out over the next year or two, but you know, do you want to be the test case that, uh, that ends up litigating that? Cause I, I know I wouldn't want to be, that'd be a pretty stressful thing to try and figure out if you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life or if they're gonna change the language, right? Okay, and Matt brings up a great point. You know, we all got into SWAT work to save lives. We all got into SWAT work to be, you know, the ones that came and, and did the right thing and made the right decisions and all these different types of things. But you know what? It's gotten to the point where they legislatively have pushed us into a corner now. and teams are going to have to sit down and really make a decision on whether or not they want to be that team that is the test case like Matt talks about. We're at the point now where they've pushed us into that corner. And if you don't have pre-plans for this stuff, if you haven't talked about this, this scenario that we have here or other scenarios, and you don't think about that stuff on the front end. I don't want to be prosecuted. I'm sorry you're a hostage today. That sucks. But I also don't want to go to prison. I don't want to lose my house, my family, all these different types of things. And that's where they've pushed us into. So 
we've got to think hard about that. And you need to be having these conversations right now, not tomorrow, not next month, now. Not just with your SWAT teams, but with your patrol teams, with your, uh, and not just your subordinates, but your peers and your executives. Because your, your chiefs, your captains, your deputy chiefs, your commanders, whatever that might be in your shop, they're not getting tons of briefs on this either. They're going to they're gonna read an article, you know, in, in a variety of uh, different professional journals that we all read, but it's going to be different. So you need to have these conversations ahead of time and everybody get on the, on the same page until we can fix how this, this legislation is worded or until we have some case law. Right. And Marcus, to your, to your point, I'll just say one last thing here. You know, I work for a chief of police. Marcus, you work for a chief of police. Some of us work for sheriffs. We know that with as many chiefs of police as we have seen be replaced over the last year and a half, and the amount is insane, don't think that you're not going to be sold down the road for what you do. Don't. Especially those of you who are working for chiefs of police, they're at-will employees. Marcus, I'm not an at-will employee. All of us aren't, actually. But I'm just telling you from the stories I've heard, sheriffs, usually, you're okay. Elected officials, they actually have the stone to stand up for what's right. Chiefs of police, not so much. So don't think we cannot be so naive to think that you will not be sold down the road and prosecuted for this stuff. Well, on that happy thought, uh, any, anybody else have anything to add? And I'll try to summarize a couple of takeaways and then you guys can jump in. I was just going to say, if you're a team leader listening to this right now and you're going to go through a couple of these scenarios with your team and your TAC commander, uh, you need to document this as part of your training and make sure that you are articulating the bullet points and the metrics that you're using uh, that your team uses for their uh, decision making, your mission planning, um, you know, how you're employing your time and distance and de-escalation. Uh, document that now because those are all relevant, uh, not, not only to provide the training to enhance the decision making of your team, uh, but to show that you've done this work and that you've had this training uh, prior to an incident occurring. Yeah, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but we, as a corporal, as an FTO, as a sergeant, as a lieutenant, as a captain, you, we have to be able to articulate and document this this effort to de-escalate, right? And and to constantly beat into our, our own heads, our, our executives and our subordinates, hey, we're, we're trying to manipulate time and terrain for the least, either no force or the least amount of force peaceful to lead to a peaceful resolution. And, and so what are you doing now to document that in your decision-making process and your training and your use of force reports that, that all needs to be in there now? Something that's new for us, at least in my career. And Marcus, even to take that one step further, um, use of force reports are fine, but if you end up using lethal force, you're probably not going to be writing one of those. And it's worth mentioning that um, if you're not good at giving interviews, particularly, you know, post OIS shooting interviews, and sometimes it's hard to know if you're good at that until you do your first one, and that's a, a lousy way to find out, then, uh, you know, invest in that, I would say, do that with your team. We 
the team I was on a few years ago, we ended up getting in a bunch of shootings, uh, you know, kind of close together. It was a statistical anomaly for us, but we ended up bringing homicide investigators out to do some training for us on just how to give a really good, thorough, um, well-justified post-shooting interview. And it was very useful. And it's something I recommend to all the teams I train that they do every once in a while. Um, if you shoot somebody, if you like the scenario you gave to kick things off, if you end up shooting somebody under that, those circumstances, um, I wouldn't just go in four hours later and, and give them an interview. I would spend a couple of days polishing that up, talking to your attorney, rehearsing that, and make sure you give a truly outstanding justification for that use of force, because that could make a big difference in whether you get, well, one suit or two filed on these days. Yeah, and I think all of us uh, are involved in training tactical teams. Travis across the country, the three of us in California, we can attest to the last two years, probably, probably the youngest group of SWAT cops. Uh, we're taking on folks with many folks with five years or less on, whereas before you wouldn't you used to not even get on the team till after that. And we're seeing team leaders with five years on. And so think about that attrition rate and how many OISs have they been exposed to? How many have they been around? How many have they seen? And it's really just an hour conversation with a with a detective about, hey, here's how we do OISs in this county. Here's what it looks like. Here's what's going to happen to you. Hopefully your department does that for you, but at least do that for your unit. Whichever unit you're in charge of, it doesn't have to be SWAT because we all know it could happen to any of us. So some great takeaways uh, today. Thank, thank you all. Before, uh, let's do a couple summaries, but before we do so, uh, just another reason why uh, it's such a pleasure to work with Chris Jenny. In the middle of us talking, he sends me the Randy Watt quote. And it's an amazing quote, something you should never, ever forget. Uh, we will risk our subordinates' lives only when necessary and in a calculated manner. And that's the science, right? That's the art and the science of tactics that we're, that, that what Cato is all about. So review the definition of imminent. Talk about pre-event behavior and what can you do to articulate that you use time and distance to de-escalate the situation as much as possible. How are you training? How are you documenting your training and your decision-making? Is everyone clear on what a special relationship is? And remember, it's almost a three-pronged test now, right? It's present ability, hostile intent, and imminent threat and, and what that means. And we have to change our, our perspective. And the, the four of us grew up thinking about civil liability because if you were within policy and you were within the law and an, an officer with a similar experience and training would have done the same thing, then you were gonna be okay. And that is no longer the case. So now we, we have to measure all of this by civil and criminal standards. And that's where AB 392 comes in. And for those of you not in California, versions of this are playing out all across America. So if it's not coming to you, enjoy that. But know that if we keep making these kind of tactical errors across the United States, it, it's going to come to all of us. As we watch several criminal cases work their way through the court systems throughout California, we sincerely hope legislators will clean up the language so we can better handle these situations in our own communities. 
We by no means are legal scholars in this area, but we do think it is critical that we address the application of these laws with our subordinates and executives before these events actually take place in our towns. For more information on this topic, check out Travis Norton's latest article on the Cato website. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.